Okay, the, the first reading will be from Mark 12, um, verses 30 and 31. Mark 12, 30 and 31. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The second reading will be from Matthew Chapter 6, verse 33. Matthew, chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. You leave your Bible there in Matthew, chapter 6. We're going to be working out of that uh, section uh, particularly Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, but we'll be going a couple different places in that. Good to see you here this morning, and I have a trivia question for you to begin with. Do you know the name of the man who was president of the United States for one day? For just one day. I'm guessing Kevin Mitchell might have the answer. There may be others that are history buffs that may know about this, but in March, uh, March 3rd, 1849, James Polk was out as president. He was uh, at the very end of the day at midnight. His, uh, his presidency was over. And the man that was going to secede him, succeed, succeed him was Zachary Taylor. He was a general uh, in the army. And believe it or not, he was a staunch churchgoer. And it was on that day, then March, March 4th, 1849, that uh, Zachary Taylor was to be uh, um, sworn in as president of the United States. Mr. Taylor had a problem with that in the fact that March 4th, 1849, was a Sunday. And being a man of God, being devoted to God and the things of it, he said, I will not be sworn in on this day because my devotion, my uh, relationship to God is more important than being president of the United States. And so he went to church on March 4th, and on March 5th he was sworn in as president, but the man that was president for a day, in case you're interested, is a man by the name of David Atchison, who was a senator from Missouri. He was president on March 4th, 1849. What is more important than anything else? For Zachary Taylor, it was a devotion and a commitment that he had made to Almighty God. What's most important in your life? What's most important in my life? You see, you might answer the question, it depends on the situation. And true, there are situations that come into our lives that are varying importance based upon the time that they come. Maybe you're a businessman and you realize that here's a million-dollar account that I've got a meeting with tomorrow, and that's going to be pretty high on your importance list. So much so that some of the other things that you have may end up on the back burner just because this is of chief importance. You might look at your family and the time of life that you have, as we talked about this morning in our, in our uh, marriage class over in the annex, and you may think about the importance of putting emphasis on our children while they're small, training up a child in the way that he should go. When he will, is old, he will not depart from it, Proverbs 22 and verse 6. What is of chief importance? 
and you say, India, that's kind of hard to answer because it may change. But when we talk about things of real importance, we're talking about things that are eternal and that do not change based upon circumstances. In the reading that Ray read for us and that hopefully you read along with, in Mark chapter 12, there was a scribe that came to Jesus on one occasion and said, Jesus, I want to know out of everything that Moses wrote, everything that we have in our Old Testament and the Law and the Prophets, Jesus, I want to know what is the number one, what's commandment numero uno. And Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord, he is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's it. That's the first commandment. That's the thing that you need to concentrate on more than anything else in your life. And not to be underdone, I want to tell you what the second one is, and that's loving your neighbor as yourself. If we were to sum up those first two commandments, we could absolutely say, Jesus wants our lives to be Christ-centered. Christ-centered. That everything that we do in our relationships, but certainly when our relationship with God, has Christ, has His focus, has His emphasis, as the only begotten of the Father, at the central core of you and me in our lives. But I say, what's my chief pursuit in life? What's the thing that I need to consider more than anything else in being Christ-centered? Look back at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. And Jesus would say the words that we just sang just a moment ago. Seek first. There it is. The first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. If we were to put Mark chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 6 together, we could come up with this statement, and I don't believe we'd be wrong in saying this. What matters to most to God should matter the most to us. And that is we are a Christ-centered, kingdom-loving individual. That in seeking God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and loving Him that way and loving each other as our, our neighbors as ourselves, we are Christ-centered. But my pursuit is for the glory of God and for the glory of the kingdom of Christ, which he has translated me into. A couple of observations about this as we begin. Looking, just breaking down the text of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. The first observation you're going to make is that there are four parts to this. The very first one is that you have an obligation. He says, seek, look for. Find out about, find out how you fit into, look in all these things, and I want you to make this the pursuit of your life. If you're there in Matthew chapter 6, look down the page in Matthew chapter 7, because it was also the words that we sang just a moment ago in verses 7 through 11, as he would say, ask and it shall be given to you, seek and you shall find. That's reminiscent of the passage we used last week in talking about John 8, 31 and 32. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Jesus says if you're going to seek the kingdom of God, you will find it. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, he who knocks, the door is going to be open to him. Seek, that's our obligation. Note also there's an order to this. Seek first the kingdom of God. He's used within the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the word first several times. 
Flip back a page or two in your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 5. As you go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, you remember what he said. If you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, go your way, and first be reconciled to your brother. What does it mean? That means that God wants our relationships to be right before it is that we come and we offer it to him what he's due. That's reminiscent of Mark 12. Seek first the kingdom of God or, or love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but your neighbor is yourself. Note also that he's going to talk about laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Note that several times he's going to talk about uh, uh, the two roads and the way that it is that we ought to seek the narrow way and we ought to find that narrow way. There's an order to it. We need to seek of primary importance first. Note number three, that there is an object. There's an object. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. We'll talk more about that here in just a moment. What's the object that we seek every single day? It's the kingdom of God. You know what? You can go through and do a great Bible study throughout the book of Matthew. You know why? Because Matthew is written to a Jewish audience primarily to prove that Jesus is the chosen king of God. And you know what, what words come up over and over and over again throughout the book of Matthew, and that is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And he's talking about it because he wants the people to know there is a ruler that God has chosen. It is the Messiah. He's here, and he is bringing about his kingdom. In fact, Jesus went into the wilderness of Matthew chapter 4, and as he came out, it was that he began to preach uh, uh, preaching uh, with repentance, talking about the kingdom of heaven being at hand. In fact, he would go out and he would send his apostles. In Mark chapter 10, he would tell them, go out and I want you to preach this message of repentance and I want you to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At this point, it's still a something to be grasped in the future, but it's shortly to be a reality. Brothers and sisters, we know the reality. We have an ob obligation to seek first. We have an order, seek first, and we have an object that is the kingdom of God and his righteousness, but also there's an offer. There's an offer that's part of this, and all these things will be added to you. That, in my mind, it causes me to question, what things is he talking about, Jesus? What things will be added to me if I put pri uh, prim uh, primary emphasis upon God and the things of God and the kingdom of God? What things will be added to me? Look back in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. The question of treasure is settled. Lay up for yourselves not treasures on earth, but where? Treasures in heaven, where moth and rust don't corrupt, where thieves don't break in and steal, because he's going to say where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be also. The question of treasure is settled, because I'm seeking first, and my treasures are being laid up above. Look back at the passage, verses 22 and 23. The question of vision is settled. I'm going to set my eyes on things that are pleasing to God. I'm going to consider that I want to have the lamp of my body to be the eye, and I'm going to let that eye be full of light, not full of darkness, not full of things that, that might compromise my purity and my holiness, but I want to keep my eye on things that matter. My vision is going to be clear because I'm seeking first the kingdom of God. Look back at the passage, verse 24. The question of master is settled. 
No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will cling to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or riches, or avarice, or, or greed. Any one of those words might fit that, that fit that situation. What's the question? The question is, who is my master? When I seek first God, when I seek to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I seek to love my neighbor as myself, and then I'm seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, I'm going to know who my master is, and that is not up for question. There's all these things will be added to you. What's next? Look at verses 25 to 34. Three times in that context, he's going to use the words, do not worry. Do not worry. What's the offer? The question of worry is settled. Anxiety is settled because I'm putting my life and my possibilities and my trust in the one who can do something about it in the best of very best of possible hands. That's what Jesus says in being a kingdom-minded individual and living a kingdom-minded life. Brothers and sisters, we have this obligation and responsibility. How well are we fulfilling it? Four points that are going to bring this passage together. And observations that we can make in practicality about how we can fulfill the obligation, how we can fulfill this order, how it is that we can uh, make sure that we're focusing on the right object and, and receive the offer that God has given us through this. And then the lesson's yours. Number one, we need to see the reality of the kingdom of heaven. See the reality of the kingdom of heaven. For so many people, the reality of the kingdom of heaven, they believe, is still somewhere out there. It's still somewhere in the future. In fact, there are some religious groups that will say the kingdom has yet to be established and it's going to be, have yet to be established here on earth. But as Jesus sent those disciples into the wilderness, he's talking about, or sorry, went to send those disciples out to preach to other people. He's telling them the kingdom of heaven is at hand like we brought up earlier. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, and then verse 17, he begins to preach repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When you get to a passage like Matthew 16, later on in the same book, you remember that he's standing there and outside of Caesarea Philippi and asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? They said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah or one of the prophets. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter makes that wonderful confession. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for man has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Note this next part, verse 18. And upon this rock, I will build what? My church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's not talking about building the church on Peter. He's talking about building the church upon the truth that Peter confessed, that is, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, you say that's great for the church, but what else about it? If you look at verse 19 of Matthew 16, he's going to say, and to you I will give the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He hasn't switched subjects here. He's using the word church and kingdom of heaven synonymously and, and, and replacement for one another. And as he talks about this, Peter was going to be the one by whom we have the recorded words there in Acts chapter 2 about how the kingdom of heaven doors were swung wide open on the day of Pentecost and how all men had the opportunity to come into it over the course of time. 
brothers and sisters, the kingdom of heaven is here. We are part of the kingdom of heaven. And if you're there in Matthew 16, write down Colossians 1 and verse 13. It's a great cross-reference to that because he's going to talk about how we, God has translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. It was happened in the past. When we became a Christian, we became a part of his kingdom. We said, I'm going to accept the rule of Jesus. I'm going to understand that he is, he is the king. And I am his subject. And the church is the place where his subjects are. We're a part of it. It's a reality. It's nothing that we have to hope for in the future. And in fact, the thing that we do hope for is given in a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, where it said when the end comes, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take the kingdom, read the church, read the elect, read the body there in the context, and he's going to deliver that to God. And he's going to say, here's your kingdom. Brothers and sisters, we are a part of it. See the reality of the kingdom. Note this next. I want you to see the rule of the kingdom. Seek the rule of the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. The truth is, men make terrible kings. Men make terrible kings, and some make terrible presidents. That's just the reality of it. You don't have to go back very far in history and see that when we set up an earthly king, when we set up a ruler and say, aha, this guy's going to solve all our problems, he doesn't, does he? And in fact, in some cases, he creates more problems than he solves. Can you imagine God and his rejection there in 1 Samuel 8? When the people come to Samuel and they say, give us a king, make us a king to rule over us. Things displeased Samuel and God said, listen, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. They rejected my rule over their lives. They would much rather have this fallible, imperfect, uh, stubborn man in some cases to rule over them. But it is that as we seek the kingdom, we're not seeking to solve our problems or put all our faith into one man and expect that he's going to solve everything. Where our faith lies is in God and saying, you know what? Things may not go well here on earth, but my purpose in everything that I do is to seek to glorify him. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. It means that I put his needs, in, or sorry, his, his commands and his glory ahead of everything else that I do in my life. Seek first the kingdom of God. Number three, I want you to understand that we show the righteousness of the kingdom. Righteousness is one of those words we use a lot in the church, but we don't usually defined. I like the definition that righteousness is simply being in step with God. I was at Texas A&M, well, just right out of high school, and uh, I was part of the uh, Fighting Texas Aggie Band. It's a great experience. It was a wonderful thing, and uh, I still have that, that sound ringing in my ears somewhere. It's, it's just loud whenever you listen to it. But one of the things they stressed in, in, in uh, marching in the Texas Aggie Band is you do not get out of step. And in fact, whenever you've got your unit or your, your, uh, um, whenever you've got your group and you're, you're marching along, you usually have somebody shouting the cadence, left, 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 right, left. 
And they will know pretty quickly if it is that you get out of step. And they will let you know pretty quickly if you get out of step, won't they? But it is understanding that righteousness has everything to do with me looking into God's word, hearing his cadence as he gives it, and saying, I am in step with God. I'm in step with what his purpose for my life is. I'm living my life according to his glory and striving to show the glory of the kingdom. And you're showing the righteousness of the kingdom. The brothers and sisters, you hear the words of Jesus. Speak, Lord, your servant hears, as Samuel said. And you say to Jesus, and you look at Jesus and his example, and it's not that Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say, Luke 6, 46. It's not that you're walking out of step on uh, deliberately, as Paul would have to chastise the Thessalonians about. It's the fact that you're walking and you're showing every day the king who you serve, but also the glory of the kingdom, the righteousness of the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, that's not all. It's also about sharing the ruler of the kingdom. Your life can be a great example for somebody looking to say, how does one follow Christ faithfully? But it may be that we never take the time to talk to somebody about what it means to follow Jesus about sharing what a great master he is, about how much he's so much better than trying to serve the things of his life, Matthew 6, 24, that other ruler that, that we might cling to, and showing Jesus and saying, I'm going to serve him faithfully. I'm going to live for him. You look at how many times it talks about the blessings of following God and what God's going to do and how it is that he's going to take care of us. But you're looking in Matthew 6 at a life that's lived in sincerity and openness and, and, and trying to help somebody understand better what it is to follow God faithfully. Share the ruler of the kingdom. The beauty of this is, is that as we do that, as the book of Matthew concludes with the words of Jesus, he says, Lo, I am with you always even until the end of the age, Matthew 28 and verse 20. We know that we've got him. We know that we're walking in step with him. We know that every day we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, part of that is going and making disciples, Matthew 28 and verse 19. That's about seeing somebody else who is still a part of the kingdom of darkness and saying, you don't have to live in that. You don't have to live with such a cruel master is what you've got. See, you've got a master that's a liar, John 8. You've got a master that's a murderer. He's been a murderer from the beginning. And it may be that you're having a good time now. It may be that you're suffering for sins that, that you committed back in the past, but you don't have to suffer for those things anymore because we have one who has suffered for us so that we could be a part of his kingdom, so that we could be a part of the saved, of the redeemed. It's a matter of sharing the ruler of the kingdom. As we conclude this morning, I close with John chapter 3. There was a ruler who came to Jesus by night, and he began to ask him questions about some of the things that he'd been teaching. And you remember one of the things that Jesus said that really perked up his ears. Ma'am's name was Nicodemus. Was that Jesus said, and most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see, note this, 
the kingdom of God. What are we concerned with? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. We want to know what it is and what it takes to be in the kingdom. This man, this Jewish teacher, was not in the kingdom. And Jesus says, here's what you have to do. You have to be born again in order to be added to the kingdom. And you say, well, what in the world does that mean? You jump down a little bit further in the context, and you see Jesus saying, most assuredly, Nicodemus, I say to you, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. All right, now we have something that tells us how we get into that kingdom, how it is that we can be a part of that kingdom. I have to be born of water and the Spirit. Here's the thing. When the church, when the kingdom comes into existence, at this time when Jesus is saying this, it's still at hand. It still hasn't happened yet. But then at that time in Acts chapter 2, when the gates are swung wide open, you have those disciples or those men, those Jewish people who are looking at themselves and saying, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, let every one of you be baptized. Repent and let every one of you be baptized. There's the water. For the remission of sins, or the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the, here's the Spirit, Holy Spirit. Both of those come into contact. And later we understand that those disciples lived their lives and made it their mission to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbors themselves, but they lived Christ-centered and also kingdom-focused, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. How about you? How about me? Here's the beauty of the kingdom. The king has stood where you stand. The king came not dining in houses of gold and, and on plates of silver. The king came and humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross. He became obedient. He was a bondservant, Philippians chapter 2. He suffered like you suffered. He's been tempted the way that you've been tempted. But the difference is, is that he never committed that sin that you and I so often fall to. And the thing is, is that he can sympathize with us in our weakness when we're tempted. We don't have a tyrannical, angry judge as our king. We have a loving Savior who has been where you've been and has suffered the way that you've suffered and that's been challenged the way that you've been challenged. And you can have him as your king. If it is that you're being willing to be, in the words of Jesus, born again or born from above, by water and by the Spirit. Maybe it is this morning as a citizen of the kingdom, you haven't been living the way that you ought to. We encourage you to change, to repent, to turn your life around from the direction that you've been going and live a life that's Christ-centered and kingdom-focused because that's what God wants of you more than anything else. If you're committing a habitual sin, he doesn't want you to stay in that sin. He wants you to stop it. He wants you to get out of it. And sometimes we need the support of Christian brothers and sisters, and we need the support of other kingdom-minded or Christ-centered, kingdom-minded people to help us with those things, because that's why we're here. That's part of the glory of the kingdom that we're in, where a brother can lean upon a brother or a sister can lean upon a sister, and where I can rely upon the righteous, effectual, prayers of a righteous man and I can have somebody else lift up my struggles my difficulties to God maybe you need that this morning 
Maybe it is that you need the encouragement and the strength of your Christian brothers and sisters. Whatever your need, we're going to offer this time of invitation where you can make that known as we stand and sing our invitation song.